Welcome back to another episode of Control Alt Career. I'm your host, Jennifer Ong, and in this podcast, I interview people who have taken a leap of faith and pursued an alternative career path here in Asia. Before I get started with today's episode, I'd just like to let you guys know that I do have a one-on-one career coaching program. So if you're feeling unfulfilled or unhappy at your corporate job and looking to find a job that's a bit more fulfilling, then send me a message on Instagram at ongjennifer underscore or reach out to me via LinkedIn. I love to see how I can help. Link to both my Instagram handle and my LinkedIn profile are in the show notes to today's episode. All right, let's get into today's episode. I'm super excited today to have Vinny Ong here with us. Vinny is the founder of Happy Human, a startup that creates cleaning and household products to fight back against single-use plastic. How does she do this? She's basically created these products in tablet form, so all you have to do is add water. This way, next time you need detergent, you don't need to buy a 750 milliliter bottle of detergent. All you have to do is buy a small little tablet and add water to your refillable container. Isn't that awesome? I think so too. But before Vinny started all of this, Vinny actually worked as an investment banker, first at Morgan Stanley, and then later moved to Blackstone. So how did Vinny transition from investment banking to starting her own business? How did she land on this idea? And how did she figure out how to start a company that creates cleaning products without a science background? Well, I'll hand over to Vinny now to share her story. Welcome, Vinny. Thanks for taking time to be on our podcast today. So I thought we'd just start all the way at the beginning, kind of walk us through a little bit of your life story. So I was born in Malaysia and I was fortunate enough to get a scholarship and went to Stanford for my undergrad, studied economics. When I graduated, I landed a job at Morton Stanley covering tech media telco across Asia. So spent some time in Hong Kong and Singapore. And then I moved on to be an investor at Blackstone as well as an operator looking at companies from real estate to retail to tech media companies as well um, across Asia. During the time, I was also seconded to Sydney. So I think my experience prior to Happy Human, which is a startup that I've founded a year and a half ago, is really mostly still in finance as an investor and operator across Singapore, Hong Kong, and Sydney APAC offices. But that's a quick overview of the journey so far. That's super cool. When you were graduating from Stanford, right? At that period of time, did you have a very clear sense of what you wanted to go into in terms of your career? Were you like, okay, I definitely want to be in finance? It was important for me to kind of be a typical Asian kid, follow kind of the secured path that keeps as many options open as possible, precisely also because I feel like I wasn't very sure exactly what I want to do. I wasn't one of those guys who kind of wake up with a passion, you know, for dancing or for arts and then just have that thing to pursue. And so it's either consulting or banking. And I just felt like my skill set was better used in banking and landed an opportunity that I was really excited about. At Stanford as well, obviously, I got interested in the idea of solving problems and seeing a lot of different amazing companies from your 
Instagram, you know, to your Snapchat were all kind of founded in the same times when I was at Stanford. So I was very inspired by that. I don't necessarily have like an idea of my own. And so for me, banking was amazing because it just gets me that exposure to seeing different types of companies and learning about them while I also kind of poke around and figure out like what I am truly more excited or passionate about. Got it. And so you were at Morgan Stanley for how long? Like two years, three years? Yeah, almost like two and a half, three years. And then after that, you were like, I don't want to do investment banking anymore. I think it was like a really great launch pack because it does give me that exposure to different companies. But I just felt like I don't have that same sense of ownership because ultimately as an investment banker, you are still like an agent. And so what you do is you help companies and you kind of pitch to companies to help them raise capital or, you know, like a potential merger and you don't see it through or like there's no sense of ownership. Like once an IPO is done, you kind of like move on to the next pitch, next company. And that's kind of how investment banks business model is. So I kind of want to get into something where I have a little bit more ownership and kind of going back to during the Stanford days where I planted the seeds of wanting to start my own thing. Private equity allows me to really be an owner through obviously the fun. We also get that exposure to different types of company. And because of the nature of private where we invest in companies and help them with different operational improvements so that over time their value increases, that experience as an investment operator was to me very exciting and very valuable that I love to kind of add to my repertoire of skill set. That's the reason why I wanted to switch over to somewhere where it's more like a principal side where it will take a lot more ownership and also learn a lot about how do you kind of think about a business and where you can add the most value as you think about growing it without obviously, I guess, necessarily taking the full risk yourself yet, given that you're still managing a variety of different companies. So I stayed at Blackstone for almost three years as well. And so during this period of time, were you also at the back of your mind thinking, hey, I'm going to start my own business? Or were you pretty like head deep into the work? Because I'm sure your hours are probably pretty long. Yeah, I definitely was head deep into work and I put in 120% into everything I do, but I've always had that itch. And I think the catalyst though was a Stanford friend of mine who's an engineer. He's kind of always pursued an entrepreneur path. He was very excited to kind of explore working together. And so we started kind of working on a couple ideas. I've kind of listed a number of different problems that I personally face and have been thinking about better solutions that potentially I can create or help create. So we worked on a couple of these problems together, just little experiments and tests here and there, but it just didn't felt like it was going anywhere because obviously I have a full-time, very texting, demanding job, and he was based out of Indo back then and then comes to Singapore on weekend. At that time I was based in Singapore. And so it just didn't amount to anything. There was just a period where we felt like we kind of need to go all in or just stop. And I think that was the point where I was like, you know, I I feel like I've built like a pretty solid base. And if I don't take this opportunity, it will get harder to leave a semi-cushy job. I just felt like it's something that I wanted to try out and it's a good time. And then I had a friend with complementary skill set that I could try this out with. And so that was the decision point back in 2019. I want to ask you about this friend who approached you, right? I think a lot of the times it's great to have a business partner, but also it's so hard to pick the right business partner. So when they came to approach you with, you know, a few ideas or a few problems um, that you found very interesting, 
How did you assess whether or not they would be the right business partner? For me, we were friends from Stanford. We were in the same business fraternity, but it was also complementary skill set because it's more technical and more, I guess, strategy, operations, finance focused. Given my experience, I guess on paper it was great, but unfortunately, yeah, like in a couple months' time, we ended up parting ways rather quickly. I guess the lesson there is that friends might not necessarily be the best business partners. So it was a tough period, to be honest. But you know, I kind of. Went down the list and kind of worked on something that I knew that I could still continue to work on myself, and that kind of eventually led to Happy Human, which is, I think, one of the problems that I'm very passionate about, both me and my husband. And what we're tackling is the single-use plastic problem. The fact that every single product out there comes wrapped in single-use plastic packaging, and we're seeing the impact in the ocean. And as an avid scuba diver, it really Affects us, and not only that, it also affects where I was born in Malaysia. Unfortunately, as a developing country, it's becoming like a plastic dumping ground for the world, and so we felt that there was an opportunity to build something that's solving a big and meaningful problem. And then we haven't looked back since. That's amazing, and I definitely want to get into Happy Human because I really think what you guys are doing is super, super cool, and honestly, very new in our part of the world, mm-hmm. and very, I guess, like quote unquote, like on trend uh, as well. It really tackles a lot of issues that a lot of people in our generation, especially, really care about. But you know, going back to that question around like finding a business partner, what do you think you would have done differently? Like. Uh, advice you would have mm. for someone today who's listening to this podcast and thinking about finding a business partner or co-founder for their company, what would you advise them when they're looking for a business partner? Or are there ways that you would have tested this partnership out beforehand? Yeah, I kind of did some of that. Like I mentioned on paper, it was great because he has the technical skill that's complementary to mine. We were friends for more than ten years, and so there's that trust factor. And then we did test out when I was still working full time. Like we kind of. Do you know a little projects here and there on weekends? It was, I guess, tough when things fall apart. I feel like the lesson would be that ideally you've also worked with this person, like in a working capacity for a longer period, of time, and going through stress together. I think it's similar to any sort of relationship, like with your partner or significant other. It's like in times of stress or difficult situation. And then you kind of have gone through it together, and then come out the other side being stronger. I think that's always like a good testament of how sustainable that could be. I think at least my case, it was a really good friend, but I don't think we went through tough times, quote unquote, together. And then when the tough time did happen, it just break immediately. So I guess I feel like ideally, it's someone that you've kind of been through difficult situations together to ensure that no matter what happens, both of you will be committed to making it work and staying together. So I think that will be my takeaway. And as you were starting Happy Human, were you also thinking, "Hey, I need a business partner," or were you like, "I'm gonna try to do this myself this time"? To be honest, I'm actually still looking because I think you know, as much as I'm really proud and grateful of what we have done as a solo founder, it is a rather lonely journey. I'd say I think it's hard because it's again kind of similar to like a relationship where you'd probably rather be single than to get. Married to the wrong person and get divorced because it's just more costly and just bad for everything. Especially with my first experience as well. To me, unfortunately, the bar is even higher now. And then we really have to like work on side projects together and kind of gone through the tough times together. And that's kind of what I'm actively doing. Kind of working with a few part-time folks that might have the potential and、um, constantly kind of looking for introductions to potential folks, especially with marketing skill set that could potentially even be like a business partner. Cool. All right. So I think I want to go 
back to your career journey. So you were working at Blackstone, you were there for three mm-hmm. years. So that was in total six years in finance. And your friend kind of approached you like with a few problems and you're like, oh yeah, sure. Like let's work on this. You were kind of working on it on the side and then decided, hey, I'm going to fully pursue it and commit to like trying out this entrepreneurial path with your friend. Unfortunately, I guess the partnership didn't work out very well for you. At that point in time, were you thinking, hey, maybe I should go back to a corporate job again? I think there was definitely a period where I felt dejected, especially after the first quick failure, because I feel like it's going to be really tough without a business partner. But I think, especially with this problem, I do feel passionate enough to kind of continue to try it out. I think that really kind of get me over the line. That's one. And then the second thing was also we did little experiments, essentially, where we got samples of the product. Essentially, what Happy Human does is we create these refillable, effective, non-toxic household products like your hand wash and surface cleaner that comes in a concentrated format. And the reason why we do it is because a lot of these household products that you have at home are, number one, wrapped in single-use plastic packaging, and number two, are just made out of 80-90% water. And when we condense that into a Barocca solid format, like we can then wrap them in paper-based packaging instead of single-use plastic. And so there is a lot of benefit from you know, not just a better packaging, but also the fact that we're saving a lot of carbon emission from just like shipping water around the world when you kind of have that on tap for free practically at home. How that works is upfront you get like a reusable bottles and then going forward you just get these Barocca looking refill tablets that you dissolve and then it becomes a full-size product. So we actually were able to like source samples and had like a small batch that we used to test and see if people in Australia, Singapore, like APAC regions would be interested in a concept like this. And yeah, in a short week of time, there were a lot of people who we can tell like very excited about this concept and want this. And so that gave us, or at least gave me a lot more conviction to, you know, really put in time to try this out. That feeling was so exciting and like so irreplaceable that it really kind of trusted us to raise an angel round from friends and family and then eventually kind of do it in a slightly larger scale, which is what we have now and what we've kind of launched with in April this year. And how did the idea come about? The problem that we're solving is the single-use plastic and knowing when we're doing research that a lot of these are made out of water, like makes us question like, why are these products designed this way? And then when we saw in Europe and the US, there were companies with this concept that launched and were really successful as well in their markets. We just looked around, we didn't feel like there was anyone offering something like this here. I just felt like it has such a strong value proposition. It's, you know, made of similar ingredients, so it's equally effective. It's non-toxic because it's plant-based and it saves people space because it's so compact. It saves money because it's so compact. We're, you know, shipping them in little envelope size. We can offer them at a really affordable cost and then it's great for the environment. So it was just such a no-brainer to me that I feel like it needs to exist. I think that was also what prompted me to keep going, even though I guess being a solo founder has been difficult, to be honest. And I guess you didn't necessarily come from like a chemistry background, right? So how did you go about trying to figure out how to even create this product? Yeah, it took a while, to be honest. So our first sample, it wasn't like our own formula. So we kind of went with a co-packer who have done it for other countries and we kind of tested it using that. It was just the easiest, fastest way to do it. But yeah, with our own product now, we had to search high and low. It started with an introduction from another good friend who also started personal home care product. And so 
they introduced us to their formulator and then one thing led to the one that we're currently working with now. So it was a lot of kind of digging, cold calling, asking friends who might be already in the industry. Google and LinkedIn actually helped. And then it's like a massive Excel, like 50. You go down, like call or email. And then LinkedIn also helped because you can identify like supply chain experts who might have a better chance of knowing what you want. I would come up with a brief of what I actually want. Like this is a product, like the concept, like the format, you know, all the criteria. It's like super extensive. It's like massive wish list. Like most people would just probably say no. If I were to do it again, I'd probably slim it down a little bit when I first approached so it doesn't scare people away. So when you first tested out the market, right, you said that you found a co-packager and they created just some samples for you to try out. How did you go about finding the people to try out your product? I actually went to supermarkets to speak to people as well. So I would bring the sample and the reusable bottle. I was like, what do you think about this? Would you pay the same price as what you were about to pick up? I probably did a couple weekends of focus group surveys, half of them in person and then the other half was just like online. I think we were just very truthful about what we're trying to do. It's like, hey, we're trying to reduce really use plastic and we're wondering if you'd be interested in trying a concept like this out. Do you have like a couple minutes? I think the good thing is a lot of people want to, you know, be more conscious as well. And so I think that was, they were quite receptive. I guess it was weird initially, especially after so many years of being in very professional setting and meetings with executives. So during that was very refreshing um, and very different, but it was fun. Cool. Awesome. Okay, so you did your customer research like on the ground, which is amazing because I think a lot of people are very fearful of talking to customers. So I think it's great that you was literally like on the ground, really understanding what your customers wanted. So it sounds like from that research, you saw that people were pretty receptive of your product. Yeah. And I did research in both countries as well, like Australia and Singapore. And, and Actually, I can feel like people are more excited about it in Australia. So I think that's a good indication. But again, I think you never really know because people might be like, yeah, of course I want to be conscious. And then they'll be like, will you pay slightly more? They might tend to say yes, but then in actuality, you know, they might not. I guess what we did was we had like about 100 samples that we, we quickly source up. We put on a quick website to see if there's real demand in terms of people actually wanting to add to cart and purchase and um, we kind of tested it that way in the sense that what was our customer acquisition cost like are people clicking are people actually interested so that was the second test that we did and did you have someone help you with like facebook ads because i know facebook ads can get pretty technical yeah. or you kind of just figured it out i just like took a course on coursera i guess the good thing is i have a lot of founder friends who have done it themselves and do it in a very scrappy way and so i'm obviously grateful that every time when i'm meeting a roadblock i'll call these friends up there's another friend who has his own startup or business and he just shared me his course that he took but i took like the really basic one but that's a good thing because i'm so basic and we saw such a strong positive results it's very encouraging because it's like oh this is like before word of mouth it was just the most basic sample that we can get and just my very basic facebook marketing skills can yield us these results like imagine you know a proper expert you know so i think it's good that i was basic because it was enough to give us that conviction and confidence obviously to race and angel round for the launch that happened this year. And I guess like when you were testing this out, were there like certain metrics you wanted to hit before you're like, okay, I feel confident to like put more money into this? We think about it as like, what is the lifetime value of the customer? You know, I guess for us, there's an upfront reusable concept or bottle. And then going forward, there's this subscription refill 
format. And so from there, we figure out the customer acquisition cost that's ideal. So that's kind of what we're aiming for, like all the time. This is a customer lifetime value and any kind of backstop for this is how much we can pay, afford to pay a customer. Otherwise, we're just going to burn money. And again, there's many different approaches out there. Obviously, if you're giving it out for free, you would see growth because everyone just wants free stuff. But I personally believe in a more balanced approach where we are seeing a good like 40% month-on-month growth and that's really great and we are also quite balanced in terms of how our unit economics are looking instead of just acquire customer at all costs kind of style so yeah i think that's kind of how we've approached it and how we thought about customer acquisitions as well in the early days it's hard to kind of figure out what the lifetime value is for a customer before you have customers on board so are there any benchmark that people can use to just kind of benchmark off of i think it's really hard because different industry also has different way of approaching the channels and cost i guess it kind of comes down to the pricing of the product and if we have more products the pricing increases as well so there's a lot of variable maybe the benchmark rule of thumb is always like a three times lifetime value to cac is always healthy so yeah i guess whatever that is for your type of category or business that would be a good rule to go by when we're in finance there's all this calculation but like when you're actually in a startup it's actually like a little i won't say completely bs but there's just so much assumption so while there is some guide i actually still think that it's not very scientific ultimately especially at early stage yeah i feel like nowadays it's like all these assumptions that you can make but like who knows is it going to change in a month's time (laughs) maybe completely different (laughs) it's just hard to like project anything really so you decided to go full in uh, on this because you know you saw that the reception was pretty good for your product the cost to acquire customer was like pretty healthy at that point in time were you thinking hey i need to go out and and fundraise so we bootstrapped for six months. I guess, thankfully, my last two jobs allowed me to have some savings. So we were able to bootstrap a little bit. But yeah, I think once we realized that we wanted to check more of the boxes in our wish list to get the next version of the product, to actually get the product, there is a certain minimum that you need to get or purchase from the manufacturer. There's also a lot of investments, like doing different tests, formulating it, getting all these formulation consultant doing a bit of rebrand as well. Like I think we had like a very basic brand and wanted to obviously stand out and and thinking about the longevity of the company or the brand as well. I think it's important to have something that's very distinctive from what's in the market. So I think those all require investments and capital. And obviously, lastly, when I was bootstrapping, I was kind of just leaving off my own savings. But to hire help, we need capital as well. And so we realized that we needed more than what we could personally afford and keep bootstrapping, which is why we went and raised the angel round around July August last year. And for people who are thinking about starting their own business where there's a physical product involved, how much money would you recommend they have as a cushion before they start their own business? I did prepare for at least like 12 months of bootstrapping, I think. I think that's safe because then you can have that full 12 months to, you know, properly focus on giving your idea or the problem that you're solving a full shot. It depends on how Reservers or risk taking you are. I think 12 months is safe. Got it. Okay. So you basically started bootstrapping in the early days and then decided to fundraise. How's the fundraising process like in, in Asia? It was also not easy. It was eye-opening because when 
I was working at Marine Stanley raising capital for other people. There's a very established business. It's very different when you do it for yourself because it could be quite personal sometimes because you're pitching an idea that you believe in and, you know, you do get rejected. I do get sad, you know, when you get no's, but I think that's part of the process. And the truth is 99% of people are quite risk-adverse and would likely say no. And so I guess, thankfully, we have enough 1% that said yes, and that's kind of how we started. Hey guys, I'm interrupting my very own episode to let you guys know about my one-on-one career coaching program. It's designed to help you go from lost and frustrated with your perfect on-paper corporate job to living and crushing your dream career. So if you two want to be like Vinny and build a fulfilling, purposeful career, send me a message or follow me on Instagram at ongjennifer underscore for more information. Link to my Instagram handle as well as my LinkedIn profile is also in the show notes to today's episode. All right, back to the episode. What do you think the investors are looking for? Like for the ones that you eventually did convince uh, them to give you some money? Did you find that there was a good particular messaging that really worked with some of these investors that did eventually invest? I don't know. I think who ended up investing were people who already knew me. And so that was helpful, like either ex-college or ex-colleagues. So they already knew me. I think there's that trust. Obviously, they also believe in the idea. And then I think it helps that, you know, I guess we've known each other for a while. So I think those two things helps. And then from there, they introduced me to other angel investors. I'm thankful as well that we have people in our network who are slightly more used to taking a bit of this like startup bets half of them were in the u.s and so they are more used to angel investing so i think in asia it's just not a lot of people have exposure to it and so they're not as comfortable putting money in a startup actually interestingly like most people who invest might have also invested in cryptocurrency so like they have that risk appetite so obviously i have to come my blessings for that but again you know it's still not easy i think there's still a lot of no's before the yeses came through so yeah and how do you decide on the amount to fundraise yeah, it was just back solving how much do we need to get to the next stage. So back in April, June last year, we did research and we have like an understanding of how much it roughly costs to like do the product, do the marketing, do the hiring. And then we build a little buffer because it, it obviously takes slightly more. Yeah, but when most companies say we raise X amount, it doesn't come all at once. It just comes over time as well. So we definitely had, you know, still a couple inbounds that would, putting checks here and there and obviously you adjust for the risk that they're taking because you've made more progress over time so yeah i think there is definitely a rough idea of like how much is needed to take you to the next stage and then a little bit more buffer yeah and how do people approach valuations hmm i think at our stage there's u.s resources that people go to all these different articles from y combinator and all these different super early stage startups where if there is like early indication this is a good range if it's you know post product market fit is this range if it's this amount of revenue is that range and then post that obviously is what we're used to which is kind of really established businesses you value it based on EBITDA or like net profit but at this really really startup stage there are still resources out there that tells you early validation like this is a good range and then kind of just use that as a guide so you would say like Y Combinator is probably a good resource for people who are looking to learn more about this space. And yeah, would you feel like those resources are think, still relevant in Asia as well? That's a really, really good question, actually. I think people would tend to put a discount because of the risk that they're taking in Asia. Yeah. So I think that's a good consideration to put into. Cool. 
All right. Okay. So I want to move back to talk a little bit about the business, the product. So I know you first started off with just multi-purpose cleaning and a hand wash, right? I'm curious to know why you started with those. So when we had the samples, we were able to get access to hand wash, multi-purpose, bathroom cleaning, glass cleaning. Those were, I'd say, on categories-wise, to test out a concept was easily more palatable to people to try out versus say like a skincare product where it's just so personal and you kind of don't want to deviate from what's worked. So I guess in category wise, like it's a good place to start to get that confidence and then get people to try out something rather new concept, like quite innovative. But specifically within this category, like why these two products? Yeah, it was just the highest frequency product that people replenishes. And when we started, it was also in the midst of COVID and it just makes a lot of sense to focus on these two products that people really need and it's a staple and using in more frequency as well. I think that's kind of how we narrow it down. And again, based on how much we raised, we were also only able to invest in mostly two or three SKUs to start with. And as much as my Morgan Stanley Blackstone stuff would be like, oh my God, think big, like do 10, 20 products. Like in the reality... It's actually within the startup ecosystem where I learned that it's actually better to go faster and start smaller. So I think that's kind of why we narrowed down to those two products. Got it. Got it. Okay. And on the demand side, I think that's usually the part of the equation that people kind of struggle with is how did you go about finding these customers? I guess the good thing is like I'm solving my own problem. So like I'm one of the persona. But obviously when we do customer research, we kind of expand it from like persona one, which is me. Obviously I'm someone who had a really busy career. I do care about the problem. How can we make this accessible for me as well from a price and convenience standpoint that still meets some of these conscious living goals that I have. So I think I'm the core audience myself. And then obviously along the way, we realized that there's also people who are more like moms who want to do it for their kids and having their kids live in a cleaner planet and there are also people who are very very sustainable living off-grid or living a very non-urban lifestyle that will adopt this concept but yeah i think predominantly we're definitely still focused on people who are millennials living in the urban area digital natives um very conscious about what they're consuming and want to do better but then you know, not necessarily willing to move to a forest at this point. Got it. Got it. And was it hard kind of finding your first customers or did you do them mostly through Facebook ads and it kind of just mostly came from there? Yeah, I think even to now it's mostly Facebook, Instagram ads, and then increasingly we're looking to TikTok as well. Okay. Yeah. I think TikTok is really where things are really moving towards. Have you seen yeah. pretty good reception from TikTok? We haven't started actually investing. Like we just do organic stuff. But I think if 10 years ago, it's like Facebook, five years ago, it's like Instagram. I think now it's like TikTok. So yeah, I think that's probably where we'll be able to find and reach customers cheaper as well. But I think ultimately for our type of business, it's also has to be approached in like an omni-channel way. Like thinking about where our customers are, where they're spending time on. Like obviously a lot of them are digital native, which is great. Facebook, Instagram is like a very efficient channel to reach them. But as it gets more saturated as well, it also gets more expensive. And that's why there's this whole omni-channel approach that, you know, we're also reaching out to cafes, yoga studios, where we would frequent to potentially have our product clear. Unfortunately, now we're in the lockdown here. And so digital is kind of the main way still. But, you know, when things normalizes i think omnichannel is definitely the way to go yeah i completely agree i think it within the facebook space is just so saturated a lot of people are like trying to do ads on there and even just from my own experience with style theory we're really trying to tap into other channels so i think it totally makes sense no, that you yeah. guys are like spreading out as yeah. well and 
Did you ever think about doing wholesale? I know you guys are like a direct-to-consumer brand. Was that a channel that you guys are thinking about? Actually, we have a lot of inbounds, and we just did like a B two B sales. So I think we are open to it. And I think for us, though, we still want to have that direct connection with the customer to get all this feedback that we need. So it depends on what type of wholesale. So I think phase two for us, because eighty percent of people still shop for these everyday household products. When they're going to the supermarkets, I think for us, ideally, we will eventually be there as well, so that it's just accessible for our customers. But the immediate short term, it's really more digital focused because we can get all the feedback that we need, especially at our stage, to improve on the product. But ideally, I think if one of the bigger supermarkets work out. Or even in these supermarkets, work out that would be great. Cool. And I wanted to move on to talk a little bit about pricing. I think that's one of the things that people really struggle with in terms of like when they're when they have a product up and running. How do you decide what is the right price for your audience? So kind of curious to know how you came about the prices、mm. that you have today. We would do the survey and be like, would you pay? Let's say a multi-purpose cleaner or a hand wash. I don't know, four bucks or five bucks in your market, and then would you pay? Two dollars more? Would you pay the same price? Would you pay less? The same price is where we landed in terms of where most people would try this out and give this a try. And it kind of goes back to why I started this. Obviously, I, I care about the problem. I think there is some solutions in the market, but the solutions today are still either expensive or you have to really go out of your way to bring your container and go fill out somewhere. I think for us, we wanted to have as Biggest impact as possible, and I think to do that, it just has to be very accessible. So price point wise, it needs to be comparable or equal to major supermarket brands, and it's hard because it eats into our margin because it costs more to do eco friendly materials like packaging and stuff like that. The good thing is because of our innovative format, we save a lot on freight, and we can rival supermarket brands because of the innovative format that we come in. But I think. Going back to your question of how to come up with price point, I think for us it's important for us to stick true to the fact that we want to make this available to everybody in order to make a big impact. Got it. And what made you decide to do a subscription-based business model? Was that like a deliberate decision that you wanted to do a subscription, or it was just so happened that like actually your product makes a lot of sense to be a subscription-based product? I guess it happens that the category we end up starting on also is recurring, very high frequency, and it lands really well with the subscription.、So、yeah, I guess it just kind of happens, but it helps that it's subscription, and and I think that's a really good like model as well, just to to make sure that we're in touch with what people want. Okay, cool. So I also wanted to ask you about hiring a team. Maybe tell us a little bit about how big your team is right now. How do you go through finding the right people? Yeah, I think we were quite scrappy. I'm still a main solo full time founder, and、um, we have three part times that plugs gap on content marketing as well as some of the more technical side of things. And then we have consultants that help with our product formulation. And then I have three interns as well. So quite skeleton to be honest. And how did you decide what roles you needed to outsource? I think hiring and fundraising cannot be outsourced in a startup. The rest I get expert helps a couple days a week. Essentially, it's kind of like the part time structure that we have. Got it. And I guess what's next for Happy Human? For us, I think we're growing well in Australia. By the end of the year, ideally, we get to do more products in more countries as well. We did a research. One household uses at least like fifty to sixty. Of these single-use plastic bottles, just looking at household products. So, if you get like ten thousand 
people jump on board, then we prevent at least half a million of these single-use plastic products from our landfill of the ocean. And I guess as we expand into different countries as well, obviously the impact would grow. So I'm really excited, obviously, to have more households join this refill, reuse movement with Happy Human. That's awesome. So moving on to the final portion of the interview, just a, a couple more questions that are maybe a bit more personal. When you were transitioning away from finance to being an entrepreneur, what did your family say when you told them, hey, I'm quitting my prestigious job, my high paying job to try something else? Were they pretty supportive or were they like, oh my gosh, what is going on? My husband is very, very supportive, so I'm thankful for that. But my parents weren't very supportive. Yeah, I think they definitely would rather me stay at a high-paying, secure job for sure. So I think for them, it's hard for them to understand given where or how they've grown up. And for them, you know, getting that prestigious, stable job is all they've wanted. Luckily, I guess our generation have a little bit of luxury to go above and beyond a little bit to see if there is more than just like a high paying job that we can achieve and spend time on. Ultimately, I guess we all only live once. I want to look back when I was eight and when I'm 80 and be like, oh, I'm so glad I've done X, Y, Z and not like, what if I tried this out? I think I'm definitely in a mode or a preferred path where I just do what I want to do and kind of minimize that regret and just try out whatever I had in my mind. Starting something, solving problems always been something I've wanted to try out since Stanford days and I'm really glad and proud of what we've built at Happy Human. It's not super fun always to live in uncertainties for sure, but I do think that the growth I've gotten from just two years of building Happy Human has been very invaluable. And I definitely felt like I have grown a lot more just through the experience. So I'm very grateful for that. And I wanted to ask you, when you were deciding to leave your job, your corporate job back then, was that a difficult or scary decision for you? Oh, yeah, of course. I think when I quit as well, I told my boss, I'm actually kind of scared. And he's like super cool. And he's like, you know, I'm happy that you're trying to take a little bit of risks. It was definitely scary. But I think the good thing is when you go into a high-paying prestigious job, it just kind of becomes the same. I think where I was at, it was probably like 80% fulfillment. And so for me, knowing that there's other things that I like to also try my hands on and get to like 100. And worst case, I guess I go back to where I'm at 80% fulfillment, you know. And I learn a lot more about myself, so this whole journey and probably be able to also pick up a lot of real life skill set that when you make work at a bigger firm, you might be shielded from. I do think that you grow a lot faster. And I think regardless, that would serve you well, no matter what happens going forward. One of the scary things with like leaving your job is not knowing when is the right time to leave your job. Back in the day, how did you know that was the right moment for you to move on? I think at my five-year Stanford reunion mark, when I went back for our reunion, it kind of just triggered another urge to explore. And then when the friend um, and I reconnected after the five-year reunion and kind of started working together, I think that helped with the catalyst. But overall as well, it's a good time because I consider myself relatively young and there's not as much responsibilities. It's not like I have kids or anything. So I think it allows me to take a lot more risk and just kind of like try out different things. I think as you grow older, I, I don't know, like it might just be my observation or people I see. After a certain age, like as an MD or something, sometimes I feel like it's even harder for those guys to try something out complete because you kind of need to be going from living in a penthouse where people come to you to the complete opposite. And I think for me, I'm still nimble and it was just a good learning journey and I think it's a character building thing that I welcome and I think 
it's healthy. I guess a lot of it also depends on like your perspective and what you value. And I think as we grow older, there's really no set path, and it's important to just listen to what you want and then try it out. Obviously, if it works, that's great. If it doesn't work, you know. You, you would have options. You don't have to sleep on the street, so you're fine. I think what I'm hearing a lot is like you actually gained a lot of personal growth and growth in ways that you never would have been able to grow in a corporate job. And that's been very invaluable for you. So I think that's very inspiring for people who are thinking about leaving behind a steady job. All right. This is a question I ask all of my guests on the show, which is, you know, in the Western world, there's this belief that if you pursue something that you're passionate about, eventually the money will come. Whereas in Asia, it's much more like you should have a job that pays you well. So you've kind of been in both sides of this statement. What are your views on these two different views? I think it's helpful to have a couple years of training somewhere else, depending on where you want to go. Like if it's like a startup, we're going to start up in the field that you're interested in before jumping out to do your own. I think there's merit to that training ground. Like I'm grateful for the skills that I've learned at Morgan Stanley Blackstone and, and, and that training ground that has given me unless you're super passionate or something out of the gate and so then obviously you probably can't see yourself doing anything else i think because when i graduated it wasn't like very clear what the passion you know truly is and so it was great to have jobs where you get to explore a little bit more and build great skill sets after you've done a couple years of that training ground like what happens i think it's again back to that regret minimization framework which is like would you at age 60, 70, 80 look back at your 20-year-old self or 30-year-old self and be like, why didn't you try this? If the answer is yes, then you definitely should try it out. Be it taking that high-paying job would be it pursuing something that doesn't pay at all and just trying it out. Yeah, it's a constant journey for me as well to kind of pick what feels right for me. And again, it's still a journey for me. And I guess what I'm happy and um, grateful for is that I'm always just actively and proactively trying all these different things out and making sure that at the end of this journey, I'll be like, oh, I'm so grateful and happy and excited that all these other experiences that I've gained, that's the core, I guess. Got it. How did you find out what you were passionate about? I've been keeping a list of problems that I am interested in solving or that I noticed both personally and professionally since Stanford days. So I think that might be a good way. I think Different people have different ways though. I feel like I did it in a very regimental way when I observed some of my other friends or even my brother very passionate about dancing. I think some people are born with it. I personally just take a more regimental way of like noting down what's interesting to me. Yeah, and then kind of just test out different things. And then one other thing I do is probably also imagine what I want, you know, five years from now when I wake up on a Monday morning, like what I'll be excited about and then kind of back solving <laughs> a little bit as well to like oh what are the actions i should take today to get to this vision that i'm excited about another takeaway there is also like sometimes i feel like a lot of people tend to be so results focused and through this startup journey i realized that it's also important truly getting more joy through the journey because it is ultimately a constant journey and process yeah that's probably how i would approach it. That's really good advice. Cause I think that's one thing that people really struggle with is like, I want to leave my job, but I don't know what else I would even be interested in. So I really love the advice that you shared there. Okay. Last question for you is any parting words of advice for people who are thinking about going down this path to start their own business or things that you wish you knew before you kind of embarked on this journey? I think just having like a lot of self-belief and conviction, that's the key. I think a lot of people, especially maybe female as well, tend to doubt themselves and then they feel like we need to have everything in place, especially people with our background, which is kind of what your audience is catered to. Like, you know, 
things are so established at Morgan Stanley Blackstone. Like you build these models, you have all this information before you make a decision. But then when it comes to startup, it's not like that. It's very like action driven. So you just have to change the mindset a little bit, unlearn some of that, and yeah, just having the self belief that whatever you want to do, you'll be able to get there eventually. It might not be like tomorrow, but it might just take another month or two or maybe a year. Just having that conviction that yeah, whatever you want to do, it will happen. I guess that's probably the main thing. Cool. And on that note, thanks so much, Benny, for being with us here today on the podcast. It was so great hearing about your journey and to see everything that Happy Human has achieved and all the things that you are planning for it. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. And there you have it, my conversation with Benny. Here's a couple key takeaways that I got from this conversation. One, when you're trying to figure out whether to pursue a stable corporate job or follow your passion, Vinny recommends using the regret minimization framework to decide. Think about whether you would look back on yourself when you're old and regret not trying something out. If you will, then go for it. Be it a high-paying job or starting your own business or starting a side hustle. Two, to discover her passion, what Vinny did was write down a list of problems that she was facing and also note down of those problems, which one was she interested in solving. She also visualized where she wanted to be five years from now and backtracked to figure out what actions she needed to take to reach that goal. Three, her advice for those of you looking to start your own business is this. Have a lot of self-belief and conviction in yourself. And while it might be easier said than done, believe that whatever you want to do, you are able to do and that you will be able to figure it out. For just like so many of my prior guests, Vinny shared the very same advice that finding a good business partner is much like entering into a relationship with your significant other. Based on Vinny's past experience, yes, it is very important to find a business partner that has complementary strengths and skills, but where it gets difficult is in times of stress. So try to find a way to put your business relationship to test before entering into a partnership. Will you guys be able to overcome the difficulties and challenges together and grow stronger out of it? Or will you guys fall apart? And lastly, when it comes to growing your business, while it is tempting to give products out for free in order to grow, it is super important to pay attention to the cost of acquiring these customers and compare the cost against the customer's lifetime value. And that's it for this week. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Control-Alt-Career. Check back in two weeks' time for the next episode, where I'll be interviewing Yi Qian Chua who works at Andawas for his day job and runs the famous Jekyll and Hyde bar in Singapore on the side. It's a fascinating one about people with side hustles that you definitely don't want to miss. So make sure you're subscribed to my podcast to get alerted. And if you like this episode, do share it with two friends who maybe aren't so happy with their corporate job and need a little extra inspiration. I also have a one-on-one career coaching program. So if you're unhappy with your job and looking to build a side hustle or switch careers like so many of the guests on my podcast, then feel free to reach out to me. All right. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'll see you guys back here in two weeks. Music